Okay, greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, uh, making his, I don't know if it's widely anticipated return, but uh, certainly narrowly anticipated return after uh, uh, various travels on the road and family crises and whatnot, which we don't need to get into. And I am extremely fortunate to have uh, here my friend and one of the most famous and celebrated historians Alive today, I think it's fair to say, at least in the English language. I can't speak for all those Farsi historians. Uh, Neil Ferguson. Neil, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. I think we should have your listeners imagine that we're in a smoke-filled bar drinking scotch. Well, I think that actually wouldn't take that much effort for us. I have the cigars in my bag, (laughs) but this is kind of a vacuum-sealed room, and that could get quite smoky quite quickly. (laughs) But I'm glad to go to the Scotch shortly. So before we get started, and I have no idea where we're going to go, um, uh, when we were doing the sound check for this, they asked us to say something into the mic, and you you rattled off four Latin phrases. What were they? Conceptio culpa, nasci pena, labor vita, necessi mori, which translates as conception is sin, birth is pain, Life is work, and death is inevitable. I saw that inscription on a a painting in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge many years ago. It's a 17th century Italian painting, I think, entitled The Triumph of Death. And uh, I thought, that's it. That's the human condition. It couldn't be put more succinctly. And... uh, and I've, I've, I've often had occasion to point this out to my children when they're complaining. <laughs> um... Uh, sounds like you're similar kind of dad to what my dad was. My dad often would pull me aside when I was a little kid and explain to me that in terms of my productivity to the family unit, I could still be replaced with a monkey and there'd be no net loss <laughs> in, in, in family output. And no, yeah, I think that's that's the key to good parenting. None of this great job, which Americans say to their children even when they're manifestly screwing up, my my mother used to point out that life was a random cosmic accident. Uh-huh. And she also loved to tell me and my sister that the world did not revolve around us, right. which she as a physicist regarded as a an important proof. <laughs> but <laughs> we took quite personally. Sure. So I'm I'm a fan of of that kind of parenting and i never say great job yeah i find it we have a only child daughter and sometimes that's harder for me one because you know she's my i'm a she she has me wrapped around her finger often as a problem and i always try to tell people you know i completely understand how having two three four many kids creates all sorts of problems i can't imagine dealing with in terms of logistics and drop off but having an only child is actually a real burden at times because try writing a book when your little girl comes up and pulls on your sleeve and says, Daddy, I have no one to play with. Yeah. And even if you tell her, you know, get back in there and uh, finish digging your ditch. Um, or you quote still, Latin at her. Yeah, so you still feel Labor guilty. Vita. Life is work. <laughs> Go away. No, I think this is a, an important insight. My sister and I used to debate this. She has uh, one lovely daughter. I have five children, and I can still elicit looks of shock when I reveal that in places like 
Stanford, California, yeah. Cambridge, or Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts, yeah. or even Oxford, England. Uh, but for me, there was always a benefit to uh, having a number of children. The obvious one is that if there's only one child, you are the playmate. Right. But there's also um, it's also the case that if if you have two, you are the referee, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is less time consuming. Once you get up in numbers, then you're really only called in if uh, if violence escalates to bloodshed. Right, right. Uh, and that's that's how you can get books written. But yeah. the only child thing, yeah, and no, I see it. I yeah. see it, and I, 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 you know, work closely with an only child, and I'm convinced that many of his his strengths and weaknesses derive from the fact that he did not have either a, a big brother or a little brother or a big sister, or a little sister, making his life that bit more difficult. I actually think, looking back in history, that large numbers of children were a pretty central feature of of Western civilization when yep. it was at its most creative. One of the essays I wrote years ago, of which I remain quite proud, was an essay about brotherhood. I only had a sister. There uh-huh. was two of us, no brothers. And I kind of envied people who had brothers. And then it hit me that in the period of the 18th and 19th century, when the idea of fraternity and brotherhood was so important, that something important was was happening. A lot of people had the experience of, of brotherhood in the 19th century, because not only did people have lots of children, but because of improvements in medical science, more and more of them survived. So you had these large families for a period before society self-corrected and started to reduce fertility. So the experience of brotherhood in the 19th century was quite widely shared. And when various different political movements started to talk about brotherhood metaphorically, as in alle Menschen werden Brüder, all people will be brothers, it resonated. So now that I have uh, four sons, only one daughter to my misfortune, I, I, I love watching brotherhood in action. I'm fascinated yeah. by brotherhood, and I think it's a very central... Uh, feature of of Western political thinking that fewer and fewer of us actually get to experience. So that's an interesting point. You know, one of the what, and you you do a lot of this in your books of sort of not necessarily elevating. I'm not saying you elevate secondary important theories to primary importance, but you give them more attention than other people do. And one of the theories I always sort of found fascinating getting getting on this point about how. In the 18th and 19th century, when you had more children simply surviving, particularly, um, and you had this, talk about inequality, the, the the sort of, eugenic is a trigger word these days, but the the quality of life of the aristocracy was such that you just had better food, better nutrition, better access to what passed for medical care, that rich kids tended to survive childhood much more than poor kids did. But because of primogeniture and whatnot, um, you had this tendency where the the second sons had to go off and find their own fortune because they weren't going to inherit the lands. And there's this theory that a big chunk of what made America, America in the colonial period was that these largely British uh, second sons came to go find their own fortune because they couldn't just inherit it at home. But they had all the benefits of education at, that... The, fr- the primary sons did, but they had to be entrepreneurs. So you had this positive eugenic sorting where the sort of the people with the entrepreneurial drive came to America to to build something up that they might not have if you didn't have the legal economic structures that you had had at the time. 
I'm a bit sceptical of, of an argument that would take this uh, all the way to eugenics. Well, I, I, thought, I'm just using eugenics because I'm, um, I'm blanking on the proper word for but, it. But. but Greg Clark has this uh, interesting argument in a book, uh, A Farewell to Alms, which is a good title for a book, it that a the Industrial Revolution is partly uh, driven by processes such as you're describing. In my book, Empire, which talks about the British Empire, I look at the dynamics that propelled so many people from the British Isles, especially the Celtic periphery, to North mm. America and elsewhere, India, Australia, and so forth. And so I think there's there's something in this. I don't buy the idea that we can draw inferences about uh, heredity or well, genetics. That's yeah, not what I was meaning. I was just meaning in terms of... But I think the, if, the, if you're trying to... For example, if you're trying to understand why so many well-educated Scots in the 18th and 19th century left Scotland and were prepared to risk their lives because it was risky going right. uh, to uh, far-flung uh, coloni- colonial destinations, the answer is partly that there were lots of them and there was a finite amount of uh, of decent land or indeed any kind of heritable property and primogeniture certainly is a big part of the of the story of what makes uh, Britain a bit different right. from say countries like Poland which had tended to go for part of inheritance and ended up with lots and lots of small holdings all this stuff fascinates me because as somebody who is by training an economic historian I suppose I I look at narratives of the West and the rest through slightly different spectacles than somebody perhaps trained as a historian of political thought. Sure. And I sometimes sense that in in the United States, um, when you or, for that matter, Ben Shapiro, where people mm-hmm. tell a story about um, Western civilization, it tends to be an ideas uh, mm-hmm. story. And I'm kind of more of an institutions and incentives guy who who looks at the sometimes contingent things that had really large consequences. I mean, if you'd had a different system of inheritance in, in England and they'd subdivided right. uh, land holdings, it would have had a radically different outcome historically because people would have just stuck around and been poor. But if if it's winner takes all, if it's the eldest son who takes all, then sons two to four are essentially going to have to seek their fortunes elsewhere. Right. So and just in my own modest defense on this, I've changed pretty in part because of writing the book that I just wrote about the death of the West I mean, the suicide of the West. I've kind of changed my view about intellectual history pretty dramatically in the sense that I used to think it was this game of intellectual connect the dots, that philosopher X said X, and then 100 years later, philosopher Y said X, and so therefore there must be this great you know, uh, causal relationship between the two, and I've maybe it's because I'm, I'm much more of a student of Jonathan Haidt and those guys now in the moral foundations theory. I, I I've come around to the view that Intellectual history is still really important. Ideas are really important. As Richard Reaver wrote in Ideas Have Consequences, Ideas Have Consequences. <laughs> um, but a huge amount of the ideological squabbles of the last 300 years, to me, are sort of, in the, the human sense, uh, making reason a slave to passion. And that people are coming up with rationales to defend their power position um, or their agenda, and they use 
philosophers and ideas as totems for their bannermen rather than actually living by some sort of dog, dogmatic push. And my argument about where Western civilization comes from at the end of the day is, uh, my argument is, is that, and I shouldn't say Western civilization, we kind of know where that comes from, um, but where liberal democratic capitalism comes from is we don't know that it's an overdetermined phenomenon and that there are many good stories, but there's no consensus about it and for good reason. And, um, and so in some ways what we should be doing is just being incredibly grateful that it happened. And that's why I call it a miracle because not because it's divine, but because it's basically unexplained. And if it were natural, it would have happened someplace else first, right? Rather than, and it would have happened a lot. If it was, if it was part of our evolutionary makeup, to have a liberal rule-based law, uh, rule of law society with trade, that would have showed up in the evolutionary record a little earlier than three or four hundred years ago, and right? Would have, and would have stuck around a little longer. But this, so, uh, but this gets to something that we're recording this on Friday, August twenty-third, and um, I just wrote about this today, so it's in my head. Um, the New York Times says the sixteen nineteen project. Have you followed this? I'm aware of it. I haven't been reading it. Yeah. And that's on my to-do list. My my suspicion is that I'm not going to learn an awful lot that I didn't know before. Because when people say it's a breathtaking revelation that slavery was an important part of the early history of North America, that is not news. Right. right. And much of what I've seen quoted, because I've read extracts from the uh, the articles, does not strike me as revelatory I've done a fair amount of reading on the history of of the transatlantic slave trade it it shows up in both empire and civilization and um, this is a literature that is is voluminous it is very widely taught almost Mm -hmm. to excess in American colleges and for the New York Times to tell us that it's it's uh, a hot take that slavery was important uh is kind of almost embarrassing or insulting to its readers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, have, I, have a, I have a mixed mind about it. I haven't read all of it. On the one hand, I think there are a lot of people on the right who need to get out of their defensive crouch and understand that slavery is an important part of the American story. There are a lot of people on the left, particularly in, in college faculties, who need to sort of get off their high horse and stop pretending that slavery was the defining institution of America or the West. And this idea, so the the preamble to this thing begins by saying that, asserting that the, the, the American nation was in fact founded in 1619 when the first slaves were brought here. And so I just want your reaction to this because I think it's kind of funny. Uh, my, my dear friend, Rich Lowry, is a big champion of what we're calling now conservative nationalism. Rich um, is passionate at times in his argument that America is not just an idea and he dismisses it wholeheartedly. George Will triples down on it and says all it is is an idea in his new book, which is kind of interesting. And what I find sort of fascinating about this is that under other circumstances, people like Rich and other friends of mine who are not white nationalists and they're not alt-writers, but they want to resurrect this idea of nationalism, they are the first people to say that this was a nation well before 1789 or 1776, Albion Seed, there was a culture that came here. There were people who came from the from from Northern Europe who brought values and customs and whatnot here. And there was a people here and a nation. 
as sort of represented in the Thanksgiving, which is an institution that predates the American founding by a long time. And so the irony to me is, is that the moment this allegedly the anti-nationalist crowd, right? Because at the same time, people like at the New York Times, they hate this argument this, that America was a nation before anything else and that we are a people. They now are saying, actually, it was a nation. It was just an evil nation because it was mm-hmm. about slavery. And the pro-nationalist people are racing to defend America by invoking the, the argument that it's an idea. Yeah. And it's this weird switching of sides. Um, it, Rich wrote a fantastic column going after the 1619 stuff. And his argument was something I would have written. And I'm a American is, an, is mostly an idea guy. Um, and it turns out that the only safe harbor against these competing notions of nationhood is to argue, well, the important thing about America, the exceptional thing about America, is actually the idea stuff and not the people mm-hmm. or the nationhood stuff. Where do you come down on that or on just the, the current fetishization of nationalism on the right these days? I think the debate in the United States is woefully parochial mm-hmm. because it's clear that one of the least remarkable features of the North American story was slavery. There were slaves... Uh, in all the Caribbean colonies. Right. Uh, there were slaves uh, in the major South American uh, colonies of Portugal, particularly uh, uh, Brazil. Uh, there was, of course, slavery uh, in the Arab world. It wasn't just across the Atlantic that Africans were sent. There is uh, slavery today. And the idea that there's something very remarkable about the fact that a substantial number of the American states continued with slavery after it had been abolished in Britain, again, is not, that is not a big deal. Mm -hmm. It was equally true that slavery persisted and the slave trade persisted in Brazil. And we also know, uh, and it's something that I wrote about in, in Empire and Civilization, that the harshest conditions experienced by slaves were in the Caribbean and the sugar plantations right. and in, in Brazil. So if the question is what's unusual about the United States, it seems a little unlikely that the answer is slavery. Uh, because if if it's slavery, why is the subsequent performance of uh, Jamaica and Brazil so different? Right. Uh, I think that to answer your second question, these really, from a, a historian's point of view, are not mutually exclusive narratives. It's mm-hmm. clearly the case that uh, what becomes the United States is shaped by the uh, points of origin of settlers and slaves alike, uh, that the uh, exclusion of, of African slaves from the polity had profound and ultimately disastrous consequences in the 19th century, that the ideas that people brought with them from the British Isles uh, to the United States and also the ideas that they brought from France and elsewhere helped define the constitutional order that emerged from the revolution. And uh, in that sense, it's not just the ideas that matter, it's the institutions. Right. So what is different, what, what really differentiates the United States from uh, South America uh, is, is that there is a constitutional order with a very remarkable set of institutions that really works. In, in civilization, I tried to show that 
Bolivar aspired to something along these lines in South America, but failed utterly. Uh, and in South America, the history is a history of constant revision of constitutions and no enduring political stability. The other thing which is important, and here I come back to economic history, is the structure of landholding. Mm-hmm. What is really differentiating between North and South America is that settlers uh, can arrive as indentured servants, which were not really, you weren't much better off than a slave as an right. indentured servant. And you could, after you'd uh, served your time, uh, you could quite quickly become a property owner. And it's the property-owning dimension plus the tradition of English law that really is crucial for the development of both uh, the United States and Canada. Uh, That's not what happens in South America. In South America, the early arrivals from uh, the Iberian Peninsula get all the land, and the latecomers are essentially a landless and barely educated proletariat or or, uh, peasantry. And so those are the things that make our story interesting. You can narrow it down further if you're trying to establish what's exceptional about the United States by saying, well, those institutions do seem to be pretty important, but let's not forget that Canada doesn't opt to to adopt those institutions, stays within the British Empire. Lots of people, maybe a fifth of the population of the American colonies that form the United States bail and go to Canada, the loyalists. And has Canada's history been radically different from that of the United States? Not economically. You can cross the border and not know which country you're in. Uh, Having just been in Canada, there's small differences. They're small. They are small. My wife is from Alaska, and her standard insult of any food or product is to call it vaguely Canadian. Yeah. But this is the narcissism of small differences. Yes, absolutely. In truth, to uh, to British eyes, they're essentially indistinguishable. Yeah. And whereas, you know, traveling from the United States to Mexico, you quickly sense that you're in different countries. I, I'm fascinated by this kind of approach to the problem because it takes advantage of what history can do, but also good political science can do, which is just think comparatively. Right. And so when you think comparatively... It's clearly not the case that slavery is the defining institution of the history of the United States. It is, it's like saying the key to understanding Western ascendancy after the 1600s must be imperialism, which is the standard argument right. the left made. And yet, when you think about it historically for five minutes, you realize the least original thing that people did in Western Europe after 1600 was empire. Right. That was the least original piece of the story. And the idea that it must explain the great divergence in living standards and power makes no sense because there are lots of people who did empire who didn't really benefit at all. I mean, Portugal doesn't get massively richer than Brazil. Spain is not massively richer than any of its colonies. So we've got to, I think, use a more rigorous framework than is conventionally used here if we want to come up with a serious answer to the question, what is exceptional about the United States? However, when, when much of this debate happens today, it's clear that all people really want to do is virtue signal and and do identity politics. And it's the kind of opposite of the history that I believe in. In my view, applied history, making history, as it were, useful, is, is all about trying to learn from the past to understand the experience of the dead and and see how it can illuminate our own predicaments. The exact opposite approach is to say, let's take our 
uh, norms and let's export them to the past right. and wander around the early 17th century going tut tut right. wicked white supremacists at all the people we encounter but th- but that's become the mode in in history departments all over this country to the point that they are deeply dull places that don't in fact illuminate the past they they just import an, an anachronistic set of, of values and rather arrogantly condescend to the past yeah i mean seymour martin lipsett who's a big influence on me uh he, is, he always used to say that if you don't understand at least two countries you don't understand any country because you got to compare one to the other and understand what's different and this is this is a common theme on this podcast um is my objection to the way we talk about american exceptionalism now American exceptionalism was not a value judgment in the past. It kind of became one under Obama because he said that stupid thing that was sort of sounded like, you know, situational morality or whatever. Um, but American exceptionalism was it was going back to the Tocqueville, explained good things about America and bad things yeah. about it. We were more violent yeah. than other countries. We were more church going than other countries. Right. There were lots of things about us. And Martin Lipset, and I tell the story all the time, you know, he always used to say that the best social experiment was not like what conservatives love to do is look at West Germany versus East Germany, right? And that that does show you how politics can have a huge different effect, or North Korea, South Korea. He says, you know, look at Canada and the United States. Same population, same culture, largely the same language. Um, and But the, the dividing line was that royalists and loyalists went one way and the, the liberty lovers went another. Fast forward a couple hundred years, both governments at the same time say, we're going to switch to the metric system. And, you know, the Canadians say, okay, and now they've got all that witchcraft up there that I can't understand. And in America, what the hell are you talking about? We're not doing that. And that's one of those, I agree, it's a narcissism of small differences, but it is this relationship to government authority is understood differently in Canada. And I do think it's a descendant of that. But this gets to the point, you're talking about South American countries, Um, the the pure idea-based argument, which I do not subscribe to would hold that all you need to do is apply the operating system which is our constitutional system to another country and you get the same results but lots of the south american countries had constitutions modeled on ours and they went they did not go in the same direction that we went in um are you a it just sounds to me i get the whiff of institutional economics off of a lot of what you're saying are you uh why nations fail guy are you uh, that it's it's purely are you a douglas north fan um do you have an overarching theory about where i mean i call it the miracle um i'm a big um ernest gellner fan you know um it's an interesting guy uh um do you have a theory about where liberal democratic capitalism comes from a theory of the the actual process other than other we'll both stipulate lots of contingency no one planned it right even max weber's theory of democratic uh, Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. He doesn't argue that this was a plan for prosperity. He argues that, that the prosperity came as an accidental byproduct right. of a theological change. Yeah. Um, do you have some grand meta theory about all of this that you can unburden yourself of? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I think that... Um, Douglas North was an extraordinarily important figure uh, who... Not a great writer. No, no but he, he got 
something that economists were too inclined to take for granted, that institutions matter. Mm -hmm. And Jim Robinson and Darren Asamoglu in, in Why Nations Fail did a good job of synthesizing a quite disparate literature in economics and political science uh, that more or less bore out some of North's or some Northian arguments. But the truth is that Adam Smith had said all this long before. In The Wealth of Nations, uh, Smith has a great passage in which he asks why China, which he says was clearly once opulent, has now uh, entered a stationary state. He correctly divined, though he'd never been to China, that Chinese economic growth had ceased and had indeed been zero or negative for a long time before the 1770s. And Smith was writing in one of the most dynamic economies uh, in the world in the late 18th century, that of Scotland. And Smith argues that uh, it's not something cultural. He says if if China had uh, open ports and engaged in foreign trade, uh, then it would have growth. And if China's social order didn't privilege uh, the mandarins and essentially deny property rights to the masses, it would have growth. So Smith observes that the stationary state in China's case is a consequence of of institutions um, and policies, and that when you change these, you'll change the, the growth uh, trajectory. And we know that that's right, because finally China did it. Right. Uh, and once Deng Xiaoping changes the ideas and institutions and incentives, which are really the key thing, very quickly Chinese behavior changes. You mentioned earlier the cases of, of Germany and Korea. I talk about those two in in a book called The Great Degeneration. The, the argument in two books, Civilization and the Great Degeneration, is essentially that if what we have to explain is the great divergence between the West, meaning broadly Western Europe and places where West Europeans settled and everywhere else after roughly 1600, then we need to recognize that it's a combination of uh, ideas, institutions and resource endowments. Um, and it probably is the ideas and institutions that matter the most because the resource endowments don't dramatically right. change, right? There's nothing massively different uh, after 1600 there, and there's nothing massively different uh, in the sense that uh, it's it's Christendom, it's Western Christendom before and after. The Reformation's important, uh, not quite for the reasons that Weber gave, um, although he was thinking along the right lines, what really matters about the Reformation we now know from a good literature on this is literacy. I mean, mm. if you basically force everybody to become literate so they can read the Holy Bible and have a direct relationship to it, uh, then they can read anything. Right. And so it's a, there's a lot of unintended consequences at work here, a lot of contingencies. And this should, I think, steer us away from Manifest Destiny versions of history. Uh, there's a lot of um, of luck for example, in the fact that in Britain, uh, before this was true in North America, in Britain there was a problem, which was labor was relatively expensive mm-hmm. historically and coal was very cheap and abundant. Mm-hmm. And the Industrial Revolution takes advantage of this kind of arbitrage, which wouldn't have made sense anywhere else. So in in a book called Civilization, I said, look, there are six things that separate the West from everywhere else. 
I called them the six killer applications. And it's a mixture of ideas and institutions. There's the idea and practice that competition is legitimate and good. Economic and political competition. That's not self-evident. It just starts to happen, especially in in England, because the uh, central government, the monarchy, is so weak. Right. For, for, for kind of accidental reasons. They, the because it's an island and they don't have standing armies, right? It's more that the, they, they do have armies. They're always fighting wars and they sell lots of crown land to finance the wars until they actually have run out of, of crown land. And that's when they have to go to parliament and, and start levying taxation through a legislature. Nobody sort of sits down and figures this out. It happens. It's really a product of royal weakness. It's mm-hmm. a product of royal weakness that the first corporation, the City of London, which is truly the first corporation is formed. And merchants basically run London as a commercial centre autonomously, and the king can't do much about it. So there's that competition. Um, Then there's the the second thing, which is is just the rule of law based on private property rights. Mm. That's also just, you know, the way it happened. Islamic law is quite different. It's not that the Ottoman Empire didn't have the rule of law. It did. It was just that the rule of law was not at all conducive to capital formation in the way that it was, especially in, in English common law domains. And I could go on. There, there are four others. I'll rattle them off because it's a podcast, not a <laughs> seminar. Um, there's the scientific revolution. That only happens in the West. It doesn't happen in the Ottoman Empire. Even places quite close to Europe don't have it. There's a little bit going on in European colonies in, in the Americas, but it's mostly Western Europe that does the scientific revolution. Um, and And then... There's also, which is a separate thing, modern medicine, which Mm. is a big breakthrough that comes much later and more or less trebles life expectancy. And finally, two more, uh, the consumer society. There's just no point in in having an industrial revolution if you don't have have a consumer society because why have lots and lots of cheap clothing? And lastly, the work ethic, the idea that you should, and this was where Weber was kind of along the right lines, you should kind of really work um, systematically, rationally, and defer uh, consumption, hence savings. So these things arose, this is the critical part of the argument, have another whiskey. Um, (laughs) These things arose kind of by chance, in particularly in the British Isles. And I say the British Isles advisedly because it's slightly different in Scotland. In mm-hmm. some ways, it's even better. And Scotland's mm-hmm. really crucial. I hate to say this because I am Scottish, but it is really crucial. Institutionally, it's quite different. Legally, it's quite different from England. And it, it is a source of incredible dynamism, intellectual and economic. These things arose in the British Isles, I think, more or less randomly, mm-hmm. just because the conditions were propitious right. and alternative institutional models that were evolving in other parts of Europe weren't as good. Europe was very fragmented, so there's lots of competition. Right. You you know try the Prussian system if you don't like the French system. And out of this extraordinary competition between lots of small states that did a lot of fighting, there emerges in an almost, almost evolutionary process a set of ideas and institutions that really do produce superior results, right. uh, not least of all in terms of growing per capita gross domestic product, which is a pretty important prerequisite for everything else you might want to do. And those ideas and institutions, when you export them across the Atlantic and give them a massive resource endowment that you didn't have in Scotland, 
they are just unstoppable. So I I made this argument uh, in in Civilization. I also did a television series, which of course meant that no academics paid any attention to it. <laughs> ah, television? You mean he's actually trying to reach a large audience? How distasteful. That argument is an important one because it discredits, it removes lots of wrong arguments. A hundred years ago, people were still saying it's to do with race. Well, that's clearly not right. It's got nothing to do with race. There was still a tendency to think it was to do with religion. I don't think it has anything to do with religion. I don't think it has anything to do with the weather, with geography. None of this seems to be crucial because when you roll out these ideas and institutions anywhere you like, they work. Regardless of skin colour, regardless of culture, regardless of religion, regardless of weather, regardless of geography, this combination of of ideas and institutions is tremendously powerful. And the most interesting thing about our lifetimes is that finally the biggest, most populous countries in the world started seriously to roll out these ideas and institutions. Uh, Just hold that thought for a second. Um... You know, one of the actual great signs of an advancing civilization is the availability of a diverse number of different kinds of food that you can eat, that you enjoy, and it's not the same old gruel. And uh, one of the essential things in that regard are services like DoorDash. I've been traveling around all over the country in the last 10 days, a little longer. We use DoorDash a bunch in different cities. It's a great way when you want to stay in your hotel, it's a late night. You had a long day, but you also just don't want to order the hotel's meager room service or whatever. You can you can look up what kind of restaurants in the area are on DoorDash, and you can have them delivered to you, and you don't have to just get pizza. Or you can get pizza if you want. Um, I use DoorDash a lot in Washington, D.C. There are an enormous number of uh, restaurants that service it. And so when you've had a long day or a tough day at school or you're still stuck at the office, you can treat yourself to the meal you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. You may just have your sweatpants on for the day or you're sick of microwave leftovers and frozen food. Enter DoorDash quality food with a living room dress code. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app. Choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities, so you might find a new favorite, too. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and even Canada, order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurant chains like Chipotle or Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, their Cheesecake Factory. And don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code REMNANT. Don't forget, that's promo code REMNANT for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. That's DoorDash. Download the app. Plug in Remnant. It's not Dingo this week for reasons that are far beyond my pay grade. So the code, the the phrase that pays is Remnant. And that's DoorDash. Download the app. It helps us. It helps you if you do that right now. So thanks very much to DoorDash and to all you listeners out there. Um, So let me push back on that just slightly because I basically am in violent agreement with you. 
I think Deirdre McCloskey does a very good job of tearing down a lot of those, as you put it, wrong arguments. Um, you know, the idea that without slavery, you don't have capitalism, I think yeah. is nonsense. Yeah. Uh, you've made the argument about imperialism. You go down a long list of all these things. But when you say, like, geography doesn't matter and religion doesn't matter, the reason why I think those things, or let me put it to you, why those things might matter at certain, if everything is to some extent contingency, and if you went from the, for the hundreds of thousands of years since we split off from the Neanderthals, no one successfully stood up these institutions sustainably, right? There was the Republic of Venice, made a good run at it, and then uh, the coalition instinct or the guild mentality closed ranks and they stifled innovation and it crashed. But can't you make the argument that since none of this is natural in the sense that this is not what, if you put humans on an island and ask them to behave like humans without any preloaded software of that modern civilization, they're going to act like semi-hairless apes foraging and fighting for food. They're not going to create cool apps to order weed off their phones, right? Um, and that is, that's the story of Lord of the Flies. You know? yeah. and, and almost all apocalyptic literature, interestingly, is the second you strip away the thin veneer of civilization, all of a sudden we turn into little roving bands fighting for resources, right? Yeah. That, that's human nature. So um, I'm not a... I'm I'm not a practitioner or a fan of Whiggish history. I just says I like Whiggish history. I just don't think it's right. All Americans like Whiggish history and, because um, because there are no real Tories in this country. Therefore, <laughs> nobody can truly buy the alternative. Uh, no, I think this country suffers from a kind of incurable Whiggish historical worldview. We're going to come back to that, but but I think that geography and religion are probably indispensable to the story of the emergence of this stuff, and then. Your absolute, where I agree with you entirely is that once you stand up this sort of social organization with these institutions and the rule of law and all the rest, you no longer need the religion or the geography part. But to stand it up in the first place, I don't think that if England or the British Isles had been part of the European continent, you would have had the development of English culture the way you did or Scottish culture for the, the way you did. Um, I don't think if you had if you had without Protestantism. And before that, without Christianity um, or Catholicism, I, I don't want to start any internecine <laughs> theological squabbles here. Um, you don't get. I mean, the, the 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 one of the, I argue or I believe that one of the most important parts of Western civilization is the possibility of sort of staggered identity, the by, the the pulling apart of institutions, so that and that starts really with Jesus saying, "Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto Rome what is Rome's." This idea that there's a space between the sacred and the secular, the city of God and the city of man stuff, that is essential for the emergence of this. Um, the fact that you had a weak king had something to do with the fact that the place in England was, that was an island. And since I think the emergence of this was something that the English or the British stumbled into rather than planned out, some of these things do matter in the first recipe, but then once you figured out the recipe, you can throw a lot of that stuff away. Do you disagree with that? No, I don't. I think it would be silly to disagree, though. It's worth saying that the island piece is probably not that important because it's actually easier to cross, uh, for most of history, it's actually easier to get across water than across land. Uh-huh. So being a, having having the English Channel is actually, it expedites tra- traffic it, it from England trade. to France. Right, but it, ex- it expedites I think trade. the island piece is not as important as you're implying. And as for the religion piece, but, again, uh, I think but, it's but, the but, Reformation. Because, you know, 
why is Portugal and Spain have this great head start when it comes to the resources of the new world? I mean, right. they start in the 15th century. And yet it doesn't have any kind of real spillover in terms of sustained growth in the homeland. So the Reformation looks important uh, if one's going to talk about uh, religion. But what's important about it is is literacy and the impact that it has on uh, human capital mm-hmm. and therefore on growth. That's the critical thing. Plus, this connects to technology. Why did the Reformation do much better in North Europe than South Europe? Uh, that has a lot to do with the fact that the printing press is much more readily available in in North European right. cities, and so one has to be a little careful here about causation to avoid the just so story problem. Sure. I mean, the just so story is very attractive. The most popular history book of our time is still Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is essentially a geography story. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, I I don't think geography is irrelevant, but I think it's dominated by ideas and institutions, which is why you shouldn't really let uh, anthropologists write your history books. I mean, Ian Morris, who's who's here at Stanford, where incidentally Western civilization is banned as a subject for <laughs> It's ironic that we're sitting having this conversation in Stanford video, I know, we, we, a university that outlawed the teaching of Western civilization I feel like decades we're in the, ago. In the catacombs of Paris or Rome or something. <laughs> I'm surprised the diversity police haven't kicked the door down. Uh, I thought they would show up the minute you used the word eugenics. Uh, I th- I think that when you look at the work of Ian Morris, an, an important counterfactual suggests itself, which is that given China's lead. Uh-huh in, say, the early 1400s. I mean, China's ahead, technologically, for sure. And it's also solved uh, a fundamental problem, which is just how do you maintain lots of human uh, beings, keep them alive? There's a reason there's this large population in East Asia. They really are very good at at agriculture, and it's very efficient, so they can sustain really much larger cities. So at the beginning of civilization, I say, look, if you go on a world tour in the early 15th century, you're you're not going to bet on on London, you're going to bet on Nanjing. You're going to bet on these big, impressive, sophisticated Chinese cities. I think Ian Morris's point is that there was a potential uh, in early, let's say, in the early 15th century for China to go down the Adam Smith route, Mm -hmm. to be open, to do really large-scale international commerce. After all, they had the ships going as far as East Africa. But because there's so much power invested in the empire in the emperor, the death of an emperor who's in famous favor of openness and the advent of one who's against it, that's a game changer. Right, right. So I think it's Im- there's an imaginable world. If we have a Monte Carlo simulation of world history and there are lots and lots of planet Earths running human history, there's definitely an imaginable world in which Chinese history goes down a different route. Or, for example, China doesn't become a monolithic empire but mm. remains warring kingdoms. Warring kingdoms would have been great for China. They would have had far more competition. There's an important literature that shows that part of the problem about a monolithic empire is that there's no incentive to innovate technologically because the worst you have to deal with are a bunch of people who come across the border from the north uh, or Japanese pirates. But you're not really – you're not engaged in the arms race that is going on uh, in in Europe where you really do have to innovate because, my God, they might have better cannons next year – I think this and you is also have the, conf- the flip side of that is you have demonstration effects. Yes, someone's better, and you're like, "Holy crap, we got to match that!" So you start borrowing ideas. Much so this is the war. What is it good for? Argument right. that brings us back to to history's ironic character. It's precisely the vices of of Europe 
the propensity for fragmentation and constant warfare, uh, the tendency for public health to be poor so that people actually are more likely to die in small, dirty European cities than in big, clean Asian ones. Europe's very vices create a potential for historical discontinuity mm-hmm. that conceivably could have arisen elsewhere but didn't. And I, I would just want to stress that if you, like me, incline towards the uh, the institution's uh, matter view, then you should be open to the idea that good institutions could have sprung up in other unlikely sure, places absolutely. because Northwestern Europe was not a particularly likely place. One last word on Scotland, if I may. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scotland in the 17th century was essentially Afghanistan. It was uh, incredibly violent, a fanatical uh, religious group, Calvinists, Mm -hmm. controlled the lowlands, Edinburgh in particular, and warring tribes, the clans, controlled the highlands. There, in many ways, uh, is no profound difference between the Scotland of the early 17th century and the Afghanistan that we know today. And yet... I'm not sure which would have better food either. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) Afghanistan. Definitely (laughs) Afghanistan because everybody is just eating, you know, mutton sausage, which they call haggis, or oats, porridge. And yet in the late 18th century, the same country produces all the really important ideas that we associate with, uh, with the West today, in particular Smith's key ideas about the way that markets work. Uh, and are more are more likely to produce optimal outcomes than any central planning or any governmental agency. That's an amazing turnaround story, sure. and I I think although I I'm probably banging on a bit much about Scotland, I want to do it because so much of what emerged in the United States had its origins there. I mean, the Scots are disproportionately the emigrants. They come, they're far, far more Scots leaving, relatively speaking, than than English, because Scotland's just not a very hospitable place. There's not much good arable land. It rains all the time. So the Scots are much more ready to say, hey, let's give it a chance. Robert Burns, the national poet, when things aren't going well from economically, is almost, he's on the point of heading to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So this grand export of people which we started by talking about not only to what became the united states states but to the caribbean exports ideas and institutional roadmaps with the people and when you roll those ideas and and institutions out in this vastly richer landscape the results are just explosive right there is obviously another world that could have gone in a different direction and we should try and imagine that world. But in the end, it's an exercise of, of imagination. I think we could imagine an alternative history of the world. Uh, but this is the one we've got. And as we study it, we should just always remind ourselves this was not predestined. And it could all have gone completely haywire at any one of a series of moments. Sure. Just think of the politics of the 18th century. I mean, what if the Jacobites had succeeded? I mean, the or Stuarts the could have been plot, restored. You know? <laughs> I mean, the gunpowder plot was more of a long shot because that was just a kind of amateur terrorist operation uh-huh. and it probably wouldn't have mattered if they'd blown up Parliament. But I think it, there are recurrent moments in the 17th century when British history could have gone in a different direction sure. and also American history because there's nothing inevitable about the American Revolution or its success. Yeah. Jonathan Clark, uh, J.C.D. Clark, wrote a brilliant essay on the counterfactuals of the 18th century 
in a book I edited years ago called Virtual History. Mm-hmm. Clark's I essay is the best. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. And it just shows that what we think of as the great story of Anglo-America is a series of, of close shaves and strokes of good luck. Fair enough. And I actually agree with a great deal of that. Um, many of my friends on the right are very cross with me for the first sentence in my book is there's no God in this book. And I, and, and he does kind of sneak in at the end, but that's, that's not the story. Spoiler alert. But, um, uh, but that is not to say, so let's take us back to the slavery stuff. Um, the ideas might emerge from contingent accidental circumstances and good luck and all the rest, but the ideas are, are nonetheless, hugely important right all civilization i would argue i do argue all civilization really is is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves it's you know what are the things it's it's what rhetoric in the highest it's sense what is. we make people read <laughs> well uh, yeah that's a certain, it I truly think. is and yeah. that's why we're kind of destroying it quite rapidly at the I, moment by by right. not making them read the kind of core texts which which are really the operating system I think one of the things I learned from writing a book called The Square and the Tower a couple of years ago is that it's as much about the network structure as it is about the ideas. Because there are lots of ideas all around um, and pretty much open source with varying degrees of accessibility. It's equally important to understand why the ideas spread the way they do, why some go viral, to put it crudely, and why others don't. So when you actually ask the question, how the heck did the Enlightenment get to North America? Mm -hmm. Uh, It is, in fact, a story of networks of correspondence and publication. Mm -hmm. And you can graph those networks. There's good work being done here at Stanford on that. Or we can actually see who is relaying to Franklin the kind of key texts. Jefferson's library is part of this story. Interestingly, although the scientific revolution was quite publication-driven, the Enlightenment's very correspondence-driven. There are mm-hmm. lots and lots of letters being written. It's actually strangely retro, the way the ideas get exchanged. But I think when anybody makes a story in the realm of the history of ideas, or for that matter, the history of art, I always want to put my hand up and say, could we talk about the transmission mechanism here? Could we please talk about uh, who's printing the books um, are they getting paid? How are the libraries being run? Because ideas don't actually transmit themselves. It's not like there's a thing called the Enlightenment which blows across sure. the Atlantic in the ether. It's it not is, even one thing called the Enlightenment. No, there, there are a whole bunch of Enlightenment. But in practice, there are a bunch of books. Yeah. There are a bunch of books and thinkers whose letters are also conveying these ideas. And we can trace the the transmission, the traffic. What's striking is that, and this applies generally in history, uh, that it's not entirely clear why some ideas do better than others. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea that there's some kind of market where the good ideas win and the bad ideas lose is obviously absurd because what we know is that the bad ideas tend to do really well uh, on a level playing field. When the printing press took off in earnest and really became ubiquitous in the 16th and 17th century in in Europe, the bestseller was a book saying witches live amongst us and you should totally burn them. So this is one of the ironies of the Reformation, that it starts out as an attempt to get people to read the Bible, but the real bestseller is there are witches amongst us. So we've got to kind of ask the question, why did such terrific ideas 
uh, as the ideas that inspired the founding fathers win? Why did those ideas get adopted? And are we entirely honest with ourselves about the ideas that won? I mean, the role of Freemasonry in the American Revolution is a really good example of this. And the degree to which Masonic networks are propelling the revolution is something that I learned a lot about writing The Square and the Tower. So when we're telling stories about ideas, I don't think we can ever, ever detach them from the transmission mechanism, which is essentially social networks and what Habermas called the public sphere. Mm -hmm. The structure of the public sphere is crucial. In our time, it's undergone a complete revolution. Here we are recording a podcast, which is part of a new ecosystem of, of idea transmission. And soon there'll be as many podcasts as cryptocurrencies we lived through this revolution in the in the public sphere. As we experience it, we should recognise that something similar happened from the minute the printing press really took off in Europe. And there was a period which I think extends really from the early 1500s all the way to the late 18th century when the network that transmits ideas is extremely uh, dynamic and ideas that challenge established hierarchies go viral with amazing frequency. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sort of starts with Luther's critique of the church and then thereafter you get a succession of waves, the scientific revolution and then later the enlightenment and then the industrial revolution, which is kind of similar. So I'm fascinated by this process. I'm really struck by the fact that in our literature of the history of ideas, we say comparatively little about the nuts and bolts of the transmission mechanism. It's funny. I I was blown away reading from Ernest Gellner and uh, a few other people on the role that the printed word long before the, the printing press comes around about how truly transformative that was to civilization because prior to that, everything was mouth to mouth, right? Or it was face to face and um, oral histories were passed on by rote memorization. Then all of a sudden text comes along and it's sacralizing and you know, all of a sudden, and there's this great scene I think I'm the only person in the world who thinks it's a great scene from Game of Thrones where... I have never watched oh, Game you, of Thrones. You, 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 this will be lost on me, Jack. Okay, that's why... Well, that, it doesn't really matter, but it's... it's. You had me with Gelmer, uh-huh. but with Game of Thrones, <laughs> you lost me. There's a character in it who is a very well-read young man, and it's supposed to be sort of War of the Roses set in, in Middle-earth. And um, But he reads a lot, and he's wa- talking to this illiterate girl... And he's explaining all these things he knows about some city or some place. And she says, you know all of that just from some scratches on a piece of paper? And you can imagine how scratches on a piece of paper, if you don't know what they are, truly seem like magic. If it's got a recipe for a medicine or a technique in it. And you can see that that is one of the things that truly changed the mind from its natural state to its post-natural state and so I, I agree with you with that i think it can go too far i mean you, at times you sound a little marshall mcluhan-esque in your the medium is more medium is the message i prefer to cite jürgen, jürgen habermas <laughs> well it does sound cool because right? <laughs> that's the last person people expect me to cite but actually Strukturwandel der Öffentlichkeit, the structural change of the public sphere is a really important but that was his that was habermas's doctoral thesis and it argues that you can't understand what's happening uh, in the kind of period we're talking about in the 18th and early 19th century without understanding the big changes that were occurring. And I think that's a generally true proposition. There are certain periods in history when the public sphere is radically restructured by technology. 
the nearest thing to what we've experienced with the internet, I think, is the printing press mm-hmm. because the printing press is so decentralized. I mean, right. you can just set up your printing press in name a town in Switzerland and get get going. And that's how it happened. So it wasn't as centralized as railroads and telegraphs or for that matter, radio and television later were. I'm, I am of the view that you can't understand the history of ideas absent from these structural mm-hmm. changes because I think it's almost a classic professional deformation of intellectuals to think that ideas have wings and just good ideas just fly no, I agree with this. I... Uh, by themselves. And I think conservatives are particularly uh, have a problem with this. Conservatives love smart conservatives. There are a lot of non-smart conservatives, but smart conservatives like love to argue with ideas. They love to argue with Nietzsche. They like to argue that all of our problems escaped some German lab <laughs> and somehow went viral here. And if we can just convince the world that Marx or Saul Alinsky was wrong, yeah. everything will be great. And this is a point I've been making for years is that, you know, again, I think ideas are important, but the automobile did more to stabilize traditional American communities than any crazy salon ideas from Paris, right? But you can argue with, you know, Rousseau, you can't argue with a Buick. And that's the problem. Yeah. I I mean, I remember having an argument early in my career. I think it was in the very first job I had, which was at Christ's College, Cambridge, with Quentin Skinner, the great grandmaster of, of the history of political thought, uh, scholar of Machiavelli and early theorists of the of republicanism and and Quentin essentially said look there's a kind of hierarchy in history and at the top is the history of ideas and you <laughs> you nasty little Scotsman are right at the bottom doing the history of sewers uh, essentially um, but I'm you know I'm very much of the view that civilization is about sewers mm-hmm. and sewers are more important than libraries if you want your civilization to work uh, so I'm a big student of the plumbing. Mm-hmm. What makes economic history and especially financial history fun is partly that it gets neglected by the kind of people who write history who are library people, mm-hmm. not sewage works people. Right. And they have a bias in favor of, of books as a mode of, of transmission. They have a bias in favor of intellectuals as important people. Yeah. And... So my natural predisposition for a long time has been to say professors don't matter. You know what? I'm not even sure that kings and presidents and prime ministers matter that much, but I'm really interested in the people who run the economic plumbing of a society. Uh, that led me early in my career to do a lot of work on on bankers because it struck me that trying to write the history of the 18th and 19th century without understanding the Rothschild Bank was... Mm-hmm. Uh, really like trying to write the history of our time without understanding Goldman Sachs and the IMF. You're kind of missing some pretty key actors. So I've been attracted in my career to, yeah, that that basement that Mm -hmm. Quentin Skinner consigned me to because as so often in in the world it's actually in the basement that you find the heating and the aircon and all the stuff that makes the house viable so i'm i'm happy to be kind of doing basement history i think that's that's more important than what's up in the library on the third floor so what distinguishes you from all of those 
practitioners of social history I had to read in college that were all left wing. I mean, like, yeah, seriously. that's what distinguishes me. Well, I know that's the thing. I mean, like, I'm a Marxist, but I'm on the side of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> I just want, right? I just want them. To, yeah, well, it's a no. I've said that for years, but I mean, I studied Marx and read widely in as an undergraduate, read widely in Marx's writings. But I always felt a strong affinity with the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. And uh, the best parts of the Communist Manifesto are the parts that say how revolutionary and great the bourgeoisie is. And I just think, yeah, yeah. Yep, no, bourgeoisie, right. it's the key. It was the key of the Reformation. It's the key to all the things we've talked about, basically. And I, you know, saw enough of the proletariat growing up in Glasgow not to expect too much of them. Um, giving them power never seemed like the way to go. So to be... That was semi-facetious. No, no, To be no, no, no. really I, I, serious, I think... I a love lot, this stuff, so that's a, fine. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of what went wrong with um, social history was, A, it got uncoupled from economic history, uh -huh. which you shouldn't do. Yeah. Because now we have this thing called the history of capitalism, which is people thinking that they're writing about economic history who don't understand markets. Right, right. And that's just an utter waste of time. Yeah. So partly because social history decoupled itself from from economic history and became a vehicle for Marxism or variants of Marxism, I think a lot of bad bad history got written. Mm -hmm. Because in truth, the, the economic history, which ended up in a silo, a kind of crumbling silo somewhere between history and economics, the economic history was telling you that the market's the key. And it's the unleashing of the market that, that catapults Western Europe into primacy and when others do the unleashing of the market they too begin to catch up so by forgetting that people who embarked on social history to try to reveal that the proletariat was the savior of mankind wasted a great deal of of time and effort the books were also pretty much unreadable mm -hmm. our problem I think has been subdivision of history into notional specialisms mm -hmm. So the idea that you should study the history of political thought without understanding anything about the plumbing of Renaissance Florence kind of struck me as silly. I, I think you have to do it all. I think you have to force yourself as a historian to understand not only what Burke wrote, but also how Parliament worked at the time that he was writing and why, therefore, he saw the American Revolution so differently from the French Revolution. And you have to know enough about Irish history to know what, what made Burke distinctive because mm -hmm. of his Anglo-Irish background. From the very beginning of my career, I chafed at the, well, now we're going to go and do social history, or let's now do cultural history, right. or let's do international history, or let's do diplomatic history, or let's do military history, and let's all just go into our little silos and write monographs. The only thing that's interesting about history is the connections between these different things. And unless you have a very strong ideological preconception about how they're connected, as in you're a Marxist and you think the economic base must determine the superstructure, as long as you don't have those preconceptions and you're just interested in how the interface works between ideas and the mm -hmm. market, I think you'll be okay. But most history is not done that way anymore. And I think academic history is essentially dying. It's yeah. basically committed, committing suicide uh, by making itself spuriously technical and unappealing mm -hmm. uh, and pointlessly specialized to the point of losing any possibility of, of identifying causation. So I'm kind of in revolt against my own profession mm -hmm. and it's kind of repudiated me in many ways. You know, I come to Stanford and I'm essentially told 
we don't want you to teach in the history department here because you're a wicked conservative. And my attitude to that is, how preposterous. Yeah. But, you know, good luck. When the enrollments are in single digits, call me. <laughs> it's funny. You actually remind me a lot of Whitaker Chambers. Hmm. Who, in, in this narrow respect, I, don't I was going to say, whoa! Yeah, I, 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 I don't think you've, you've lived Whitaker Chambers' lifestyle no. in many different ways. But um, Whitaker Chambers, in a letter to Bill Buckley, or a series of letters to Bill Buckley, explained why he couldn't call himself a conservative, even though he switched sides. And he basically called would only call himself a man of the right because he would never let go of his Marxist understanding of how the means of production are really what drive history and. Um, and which is why he advocated for what he called the Beaconsfield position after uh, Disraeli, yeah, who was the yeah. first Earl of Beaconsfield. I know you know that, and I was just doing it for our listeners. And um, uh, and it's more impressive that I know who Whitaker Chambers is. He's not a big name <laughs> in Oxford. He's um, an important fellow on this side of the pond. Yeah, I, I will, yeah, I will yeah. still fly the flag for Whitaker Chambers. Um, although George Will has a bizarre obsession in demonizing him. Um, but he wasn't a conservative because he didn't think you could actually conserve anything. Yeah, you know, in a real way. <clears throat> um, well, and... I, yeah, I used to have this argument with with Morris Cowling, who was the the grand master of the Peterhouse school. I was a fellow of Peterhouse uh, early in my career. I had a wonderful time. Morris was a true Tory, mm-hmm. and uh, he suspected that I wasn't and and he was right because I'm just a product of the Scottish Enlightenment mm-hmm. and that you know has its its Whiggish side which I try to curb but broadly speaking I'm a classical liberal mm-hmm. I, th- I think Smith was basically on the money about how society works right. Me too. in both the wealth of nations and the theory of moral sentiments and I don't think anybody's greatly improved on that insight mm-hmm. on those insights and so I aligned myself as an undergraduate with the the Thatcherites because that was the closest thing to classical liberalism that was on offer in Britain right. uh, in the early 1980s and certainly you weren't going to get it from the Labour Party or even from the Social Democrats. But I was reading Andrew Sullivan's column last week on conservatism and reactionaries mm-hmm. and I found that I was essentially a reactionary by his test, um, which is essentially, do you hate the politically correct Mm -hmm. progressive left so much that you can hardly contain yourself (laughs) and contain your contempt? Yeah, I think I definitely have a a reactionary side, which, which might explain my tendency to not just to to adhere to classical liberal principles, but to kind of root for the, not just the conservatives, but to root for the people going after, going aggressively after the left. Yeah. Because I hate the left. I hate the left. I've hated them from early on because I think that they they aspire to states of unfreedom Mm -hmm. and they, they doggedly refuse to learn from the history of their own mistakes and they have taken over such a large part of academic life, especially the humanities, that, going back to our earlier discussion, we are no longer really teaching 
uh, the key texts, the key ideas sure. that are the foundation of our operating system of Western civilization. So I, I was surprised to find myself a bit of a reactionary. Yeah, although um, I used to be pretty good friends with Andrew, I would not, I, and I have no problem, I have no desire to revisit old disagreements. <laughs> I would not invest in him papal authority and no, your no, no, political no. Actually, like it, like everything that Andrew writes, it was highly self-referential. And what he the meant by conservative say. was what I, Andrew, believe and reactionary is That's right. like what yeah. I disapprove of. So it's, you know, but, but it's uh, nevertheless a, an interesting, an interesting test. And I, I remember a friend sending me a wonderful book called Why I Am a Reactionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember the author's name now. A kind of obscure book. But I, I think there's a sense in which when we transition from a discussion about the plumbing, about the economics, about how you get a society to prosper, and we enter the realm of culture and mm-hmm. discussions about oh, education and how it should be done, I think the ideas of the left are so pernicious uh, that you kind of have to be reactionary. You have to say, no, in fact, we should be teaching history in a more 19th century way. that That's something that I wrestle with quite a bit as I consider the education of my youngest children who are uh, seven and nearly two. I, I quail at the prospect of educating them in the United States because mm-hmm. what I see already in in the earliest years of schooling is such a is such a strange account of history mm-hmm. that I I can't bear to think of it being drilled into them now coming back to our earlier discussion of 1619 American history is now taught in schools and colleges as part one slavery yeah the wickedness of the United States the or the sin the original sin. Part two, civil rights. Right. And that's it. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And I, I just think that can't be the takeaway. If that's the takeaway of American history, we're doomed. Yeah, but all right, so but uh, just a couple quick things. I don't work in academia. I have nothing but sympathy for you. <laughs> I don't uh, want sympathy. I, I, I feel like I should have seen this coming much, much earlier. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I my family were political conservatives. We were like Christians in ancient Rome. I, I get, <laughs> but there's first of all there's value to that oppositionalness, right? Because you get to see things that other people don't see, and it helps with raising kids. I would argue. Um, when my daughter did 20th century history this year, um, I told her, and she asked me questions about like Woodrow Wilson, and I am, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am the leader of the International Organization of Woodrow Wilson Haters. Um, <laughs> I told her the things that she's supposed to know from the textbook and the test, and I, we talked about that, and I said, and now he, here's what Daddy thinks. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and the fact that she... Don't write this in right, the exam. This could get you in trouble if you write this stuff. But the fact that, you know, you know it's sort of like um, I have this long-standing riff about how the ranks of stand-up comics are wildly overrepresented by blacks, Jews, uh, gays, and Canadians. And it's because they are all slightly alienated from the majority culture. They got to know their own thing. And they also got to know the majority thing. And that gives them this critical distance that allows them to say, hey, you notice these funny connections between things? Immigrants have this to a great extent as they come here and they tell Americans something that Americans don't actually believe about themselves, that we have a culture. Yeah. Like, you see it the second you get off a plane. You just see, 
you know, immigrants have this visitor from Mars thing that Americans, they think culture is what other places have. Right. And um, I think giving kids some of that is, is, is immensely sort of useful and, and, and interesting. But as someone who's been toiling in the world of conservative stuff for my entire adult life, my problem with the way you describe the reaction versus the conservative part is that there's a reason why this podcast is called The Remnant. It comes from an essay by Albert J. Nock. It's about the book of Isaiah. Um, I have no problem with people. I mean, I might disagree with their tactics and I disagree with their arguments, but I have no problem with people hammer and tongs fighting the left. If the goal is to win something, is to persuade people about something. My problem with what is happening on big chunks of the right these days, and we've managed to avoid talking about Donald Trump at all in this entire thing, which is kind of blissful. We um, had so nearly got through <laughs> without his I name know. coming up and you just spoiled it. <laughs> I apologize. But... Um, so many on the right now. I mean, you talk about being a classical liberal. If defeating the left means giving up your classical liberalism, then there's no point in really right. defeating. I mean, it's still, I would rather have right-wing nationalism than left-wing nationalism in many regards, depending on how you define these things. But I'd rather not have nationalism at all. And um, the sudden race by many of my friends on the right, and some of them are truly dear friends, to sort of downgrade or dismiss altogether the importance of these ideas that make being a classical liberal a classical liberal in favor of uh, this power politics notion that it's it's our nationalism or their nationalism. And so if that's the binary choice, then we might as well pick our nationalism. I reject all of that. And that's why I call this thing the remnant is because there are a bunch of people out there who still believe the things they believed in in 2014. You know, uh, Charles Murray, our friend Charles Murray mm -hmm. is one of them. And letting partisan politics corrupt your beliefs is much worse than letting it corrupt your tactics. Because it's truly surrender to the other side if it let you let it corrupt your, your, your beliefs. And I see an enormous amount of that going on on the right. I see that among a lot of conservative intellectuals. We don't have to name names. Um, I know you know some of them. Um yeah, burning, but I find, yeah, bur I find that dismaying. Burning the Constitution to own the libs yeah, doesn't, it's a problem. <laughs> doesn't seem like the way to go. And I, you know, I think um, the United States is going through one of those strange periods of, of polarization and internecine conflict that, that occur when there's no very credible external enemy. Mm -hmm. And the one positive feature of the Trump presidency is that he's focused our minds on the Chinese threat. Sure. And I think that as it becomes clear that it really is a major problem and it's potentially a bigger challenge than the Soviet Union was, some of the toxic quality of recent political debate will subside. Mm -hmm. It's it's at this point one of the few things about which there's something like a bipartisan consensus, the other being that big technology is too powerful. But the dip, deep schism between the never Trumpers and the what the heck, why not mm -hmm. Trumpers. I, I belong to the seldom Trumpers, mm -hmm. a small sect of people who had grave reservations but felt that there were net benefits, mm -hmm. whether one looks at the Supreme Court. Sure, I, uh, I have no first the China policy. Sure. I mean, I'm a seldom Trumper. I, I, I think that that position is is a defensible one. My sense is that, that I've said all along, populism has a short half-life. Mm -hmm. 
uh, in a in a in a republic with a strong constitution like this one, which isn't a Latin American country, I don't actually think that I don't think there's a way for the most malicious of demagogues to to break the constitutional mm-hmm. order. I think the rule of law is too powerful. I think there are too many people invested in it. My concern is actually what comes next mm-hmm. and where will we be in whether it's twenty. 21 or 2025 when a democratic president who is in some ways a populist of the left says mm. now that you've got rid of all the constraints on fiscal and monetary policy right. let's get down to business and i don't think we'll have a leg to stand on at that point and i think that's the danger yeah. that if you really do you know burn your principles to own the libs those principles are not going to unburn when right. you need them uh, because you won't have any credibility at that point this is a big concern because I think that when one tries to do pattern recognition in history, there is a fairly high probability that the populist phase burns itself out and gives way to a new progressive phase. Mm. That seems like a likely sequence of events, especially when you look at the attitudes of younger voters who right. are sort of so far to the left of older voters that you can't feel terribly optimistic about the long-term prospects for any brand of conservatism. So that's kind of where I am at the moment Uh when I think about the political future, there'll come a time when, you know, Trumpers, never Trumpers and seldom Trumpers will be uh, huddled together in a very uncomfortable place, wondering why we had these bitter disagreements mm-hmm. when, you know, we took we took our eyes off off the prize. I and mean, the prize is still the same old prize of that the, the there was in the 1980s. Preserve a free society, pre- preserve individual liberty. And the threats to it are within as much as they are outside. I don't think we're doing a great job at this point in building the kind of institutional protections that individual liberty needs. In fact, I see us kind of tearing them down. And that's why we can't have nice things. Um, yeah, no nice things. Um, I remember what I said about Laba Vita and Nikesi Mori. You know, life is work and, and death is inevitable. I can't, I can't offer you great consolation. How do you say sell your bonds in Latin? <laughs> well, the way things are going, it's probably sell your stocks, buy gold, stay long the bonds for a little bit longer. But when the probability of a Warren presidency reaches fifty percent, then sell the bonds. Okay, I, 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 I've kept you way longer than I'm sure you planned. I could do this all day i still there are things i want to argue with you about in terms of the importance of england's island status but we'll just have to leave that for another time uh neil ferguson thank you so much for doing this my pleasure okay so uh uh neil has left the room and i'm here alone um i enjoyed that a great deal i'm not going to try and do a uh, long and rambly, uh, various and sundry thing. Uh, I just wanted to say to everybody who's following my Twitter feed that thank you very much for the support. You know, I had a bit of a family thing that I can't get into the details of, uh, but I will be home in Washington soon, and we are going to uh, the the Hayes uh, Goldberg uh, Toby Stock joint venture, the new media company. We're going to have some big announcements coming fairly soon. Uh, the really important thing is the support of people like you. Uh, and if you can recommend this podcast to people, if you can recommend signing up, uh, at Reagan 35 X for, uh, the G file and other products, uh, soon to come, that would be great. Um, I have many stories from the road that I can impart, but I think I'll wait until 
Um, I'm back in the studio with Jack, and we have some really fun podcasts lined up in the future. And since Jack is not here, I'm happy to say I'll see you next time. Now you're on this podcast. That's all you need to know about the human condition in four brief Latin lines, which I'm happy to translate for the for the benefit of those who didn't do Latin. All right, we're gonna we're gonna save that for the actual show. So I'll just have yeah. Okay. It's my philosophy of life in a nutshell. It's great. All right, so recording. Great. <laughs>